We introduced you last hour to the beginnings of this talk about the judgment seat of Christ. I want to spend the whole of this hour on that. I would like to be able to entertain some questions that you may have about it. Uh, it is not something that I can hand out to you a lot of material on because, frankly, I am embarrassed at how little of consequence that has really been written on such an important subject that the Bible says so much about. <clears throat> it is a, a matter of great concern to me that the average Bible-believing person, the average evangelical, when he thinks about heaven, thinks of a leveler. Uh, he thinks of heaven as that which we, were all, we will all be equal. There's no way that you can look at Scripture and believe that kind of truth. Uh, heaven is not a leveler. Uh, there will be as much diversity in heaven as there is diversity in the family of God right now. Uh, we are choosing by the way we live today the level of experience that we will have in the life to come. And that really grows out of this whole doctrine of the judgment seat of Christ, the Bema. And so I come back again to this overlay that we had right at the beginning of the semester, mind renewers from prophecy. The thing that motivated the Apostle Paul to live the way he lived was looking at the things that couldn't be seen. He looked ahead at the unseen things, and that changed the way he lived in the present. Now, the judgment seat of Christ is an unseen thing. You would know nothing about it from your experience around you. The only way you know anything about it is because of the revelation of the Word of God that we shall all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. Uh, sometimes we get the idea that um, the unbelieving will be judged by their works and uh, the believers will not be judged by our works, that our works don't make any difference. One of the reasons that that comes up is because we try to clarify to people without Jesus Christ that all of their righteousness, all of their works are only as filthy rags in God's sight as far as achieving eternal life is concerned. And because we try to make it so clear that a person cannot be... Uh, an inheritor of eternal life by the good works that they perform today, we tend, in doing that, to give the impression that good works don't make any difference. Uh, in fact, it almost uh, uh, comes out as though you'd be better off if you had lots of bad works. Uh, good works make a difference. Good works make a difference to the unregenerate. And good works make a difference to the regenerate. Uh, later on in an hour, we will talk about a judgment that is to come for unbelievers, referred to in Revelation 20 as the great white throne judgment, where all the unbelievers 
will be gathered to be judged. <coughs> and they will be judged, Revelation 20 says, twice, according to their works. According to their works. Now, all of their works will not be sufficient to allow them to escape eternal separation from God. But that does not mean that their works don't make any difference. Uh, we will talk about that end of it uh, when we get to the discussion of the judgment of unbelievers. But I simply say that with regard to all mankind, works make a difference. Righteousness or the absence of righteousness makes a difference. And it makes a difference for the unregenerate at the great white throne judgment. And works make a difference for the regenerate at the bima, the judgment seat of Christ. Now, we have this area talked about on page 295 of your notes. So if you are not there yet, will you turn there? And let me move through this in some detail today. Uh, in the last hour, I put on the overhead projector a series of transparencies taking you through five judgments. Yeah, I'll come back to these several times, but just to keep refreshing them in your minds, uh, that judgment number one uh, for all mankind was at the cross where Jesus Christ paid the price for all the sins of all the world. And, of course, for believers, I look back to that as the first judgment, the judgment of a believer's sins, the judgment for a believer as a sinner. God paying the price for sins that the sinner could not pay for himself. Then a second judgment is the judgment of the believer's works. And that is the one that we want to talk about today. Now in doing that, I have skipped over, however, a third judgment that we do not basically talk about in this course because it relates uh, more to soteriology, sanctification, than it does to eschatology. But there are basically three judgments for a Christian. With regard to the timing of those judgments, the judgment of the believer past tense, is as a sinner, a judgment for his sins that we've just mentioned. <clears throat> the judgment of a Christian present tense is his daily discipline. <coughs> 1 Corinthians chapter 11 makes that very, very clear when uh, Paul says to the Corinthian people, Many of you are weak. Many of you are sickly. 
Many of you sleep, that is, you have died, because you have not judged yourselves. If you would judge yourselves, he says, you would not need to be judged of God. So, sometimes, <clears throat> how often I do not know, but sometimes, weakness, sickness, and death are God's chastening hand upon the believer because of his failure to judge himself, because he continues to live in sin. And that comes not upon him because of some legal or forensic reason. The legal reason was taken care of at the cross. And I can never again be brought under punishment for even one sin because of the price that Jesus Christ paid. But this is a disciplinary thing for corrective purposes and for protection of the church. When the believer fails to respond to the mild discipline of weakness and the more rigorous discipline of sickness, it may be that for the sake of the body, God will need to remove that believer because he's more of a detrimental influence than a helpful influence in that church. 1 Corinthians 5 is a case in point. The brother who was guilty of fornication, such as was not even named among the Gentiles, was to be excommunicated, to be delivered unto Satan for the destruction of the flesh in order that the soul may be saved. For a little leaven leavens the whole lump. And therefore, it was in God's wisdom better for that person to be removed for the sake of the body, even though that person shall suffer great loss. Uh, in the same vein, 1 John chapter 5 talks about a sin unto death, not spiritual death, for there is no sin unto spiritual death for a believer. For that sin has already been paid for. There could be nothing in that category. But there is a sin unto death physically. A termination of my opportunity in this life to live for Christ and to receive reward for the kind of life I lived at the judgment seat of Christ. When that person is taken out of this life in an untimely way, they are a great loser as far as the judgment seat of Christ is concerned and as far as their lifestyle in the future with Christ is concerned. So there is a present kind of, of judgment of sin in order to be corrective and therapeutic for the church. And then there is the future judgment, the Bema Seat of Christ, that we are putting our attention on today. One past, one present, one future. Now, add to that, again, a rehearsal of the subject matter. I'm doing this as an overview, and I'll come back to some of these points in more detail from the outline in just a moment. But as to the subject matter of the judgment of a Christian as a sinner was all sin. 
without exception, all sin. The subject matter of the uh, present judgment is his present sins, not for some forensic reason, but for some practical reason, uh, some therapeutic reason right now within the body of Christ. And f finally, the third judgment, the subject matter, will be the believer's works. Every act that he has performed as a believer. The place of these three judgments, <coughs> in the case of the first one, it took place at the cross in the death of Christ. In the case of the second one, it takes place anytime, anywhere. In the place of the third one, it will take place at the Bema, 1 Corinthians or 2 Corinthians 5. We must all appear before the judgment seat, the Bema of Christ. And we'll look at that in more detail in just a moment. Finally, the results of these judgments for the Christian. The first, the result was the death of Christ for my sins. My sins were legally, forensically, imputed to Jesus Christ. And his righteousness was imputed to me. I didn't get a 87% a, uh, or a 92%, 100%. Christ's righteousness was imputed to me. Just as 100% of my sins were imputed to him, so 100% his righteousness imputed to me. The death of Christ. The present judgment of a believer's sins are for discipline, not for punishment, not for payment, but for discipline within the church. And the future judgment of a believer's works are to determine the level of his inheritance, to determine the position that he shall occupy in the life to come, to determine the quality of life that he shall experience with Jesus Christ. So, in an overview, that is how I would see the three uh, judgments on the Christian. Now, with that in the background, turn back to page 295. <clears throat> the fact of the believer's judgment. In the preceding two paragraphs, uh, Dr. Cook has been talking about the metaphors that are used in Scripture to portray this judgment. Uh, with that in the background, look at Roman or rather capital A, the fact of the believer's judgment. Uh, he has listed, first of all, its subjects. Uh, may I insert a suggestion there that let's look first of all, first of all at its judge. Uh, 
John chapter 5 teaches us that all judgment has been committed into the hands of Jesus Christ. And when we stand at the judgment seat, <clears throat> it will be before Jesus Christ. And that to me is a phenomenal thing, to realize that one that I have never seen, but whom I have believed in, and encouraged others to believe in now for uh, 35 years, I will one day stand before him. And I shall stand there not in fear, but I shall stand there uh, with a sense of sobriety and with a sense of awesomeness as, that I rec as I recognize for the first time in my life, uh, I will now openly be uh, evaluated according to truth. Now, that's very meaningful to me, that the judge is Jesus Christ. Now, I, like you, have been judged by a lot of other people. And... Uh, at times, they have been far too generous in their evaluations. Uh, I can remember back to when I had been 10 years as president instead of 20. There was a secret chapel that was pulled off, and uh, everybody was in the chapel as my secretary and I walked over, and there was one seat left for me. And all kinds of visiting dignitaries were there and they stood up one at a time to make all these very nice and generous statements about me. And I sat there and listened to them and uh, I marveled at the truthfulness of their <laughs> evaluations and I lapped it up. I felt good about it all. And uh, then as I was sitting there really enjoying this, uh, one of them said, uh, Dr. Rodmacher, would you like to say something? Well, I wasn't really prepared for that. I was enjoying this too much. And uh, so I got up and I said something that, uh, as I think about it, probably was a little superficial, though it had an element of real truth in it. And uh, we've often done this. We will say, oh, it wasn't me. Uh, there, were, there were many, many others who were involved in this. This is not the work of a man. This is the work of uh, literally tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of people. And I said that, and it was only really uh, after that, as I reflected back on it, how, how uh, realistic that became to me. Uh, there are some people in the family of God that have, by reason of their position, the opportunity of being up front all the time. They are... They are in the limelight, so to speak. And uh, consequently, they are the recipient of a lot of praise, and they are also the recipient of a lot of blame. They are up there where they receive it. But there are a lot of people who are behind the scenes that uh, are doing faithful ministries every day that receive no recognition at all. And the tendency is to think that that goes unnoticed and unrewarded. But God makes it very clear that that doesn't. 
And he does it with an illustration in Scripture when he talks about a prophet and a prophet who is faithful to his gift of prophecy shall receive a prophet's reward. And then he goes on to say that one who gives a cup of cold water in a prophet's name shall receive the same. But you hear about the prophet, you don't hear about the cup of cold water. And uh, I remember a board member that none of you know anything about. He's now gone to be with the Lord. When he was on our board, he was the kind of man who would be quietly around the campus in the middle of the night or early in the morning fixing a furnace that didn't, didn't work that night. And uh, not a man who had been through college and seminary, uh, but a man who was very faithful. And a man who came into my office one day and uh, he said, I, I don't want to take much of your time, which was characteristic of him. And he, uh, he pulled a check out of his wallet. It was kind of worn. He said, I've been carrying this around for a long time. He said, it's the settlement that we got from our insurance company as a result of an accident that they had. And he said, I want to give that to you and I want to do it personally. But he said, that isn't really why I came today. He said, I wanted you to know that I was on the board when they called you to be president. And he said, I voted for you at that time. And he said, I want you to know that from the day that we voted for you, that my wife and I have prayed for you every night before we go to sleep. And that really just blew my mind to think that there are actually people who day after day after day without fail are supporting uh, others at the throne of God in prayer, whose names you never know. So at the judgment seat of Christ, there will be a righteous judge. Uh, that's challenging to me. It's also comforting to me because I have been blamed as well as uh, approved. I remember one letter that I got where we had sent a person a set of spiritual gift tapes at their request and uh, they sent the invoice back and simply wrote on the invoice, give these to Dr. Rodmacher to give to the devil when he appears in hell for his blasphemy of the spirit. That's probably the strongest uh, attack that I've received, and uh, that man and I have since been in correspondence, and uh, I think we agree that we'll probably both be in heaven. Uh, but uh, there have been wrong accusations that have been made. And one of the beautiful things about this truth is that I don't have to, I don't have to feel constrained to make all the rights wrong today or all the wrongs right today. Because one day, I will stand before a righteous judge who knows all things from beginning to end and knows all things perfectly, who not only knows every work I've ever done, but knows every motivation behind every work I've ever done. And the evaluation will be according to truth. Absolute truth. That's an impossibility today. But it won't be impossible then. Now, who will be there? Look at the subjects. 
all the believers in all the generations of the church of Jesus Christ will be assembled together. There are two times in the New Testament when the word episunagoge is used. You can figure that word out pretty easily. Sunagoge, synagogue. Epi, the preposition on the front of it that perfects the idea of it. You find it once in Hebrews chapter 10. Not forsaking the episunagoge, not forsaking the assembly as the habit of some is. That's the gathering of the believers here, local church. But the other time it's used is in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, our gathering together unto him. So just as that physical assembly, the little microcosm of the macrocosm meets today all over the world, so at that time, the total assembly, some time ago, the popes in Rome called for a council and uh, Pope John started that, Pope John the 23rd, and I think they had 3,000 delegates present. That, in their eyes, was the church. Uh, I have news for them. Uh, the real uh, vicar, Jesus Christ, is one day going to give the call and the church with a trumpet call is going to be summoned and every last one will be there. Not some, but all of us will be there. Now, when you look at that, somebody might respond who doesn't have too much interest in this thing and say, Lord, I, you know, I really, uh, I'm really not turned on by parties and celebrations. Uh, besides, I don't think I have much to gain by being there. Uh, if you don't mind, I'll just sit this one out. Now, there'll be no one that sits this one out. They will all be there. Uh, from the least to the greatest in the, uh, at the Bema seat. So the subjects, all the believers, to be evaluated. Only believers and all believers will be present at that time. Now notice the third word here in 2 Corinthians 5. It says, uh, we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ to receive that which was done in our body according to what was done, whether it be good or bad. Uh, why must we all appear? Uh, or what is the purpose of the judgment seat? And what is the purpose of the believer's judgment. Well, one thing that I've already alluded to that uh, is very obvious is vindication. Uh, in some cases, Christians have been treated as the filth and the offscouring of the world. That's going to be righted there. Stephen's martyrdom is going to be righted there. Paul's uh, whippings and scourgings illegitimately are going to be righted there. There's going to be vindication. Uh, and that comes right down to our own lives today. There, during our lives today, there are some things that are made right. 
There are some times when truth is known. There are other times when truth is never known. And some people may get the idea that that's just lost. It isn't lost. It can't be lost. Why? Because God's righteous. And God's righteousness must vindicate. It must bring into a clear light the truth. And though the truth may not come out in the day-by-day -day events of our life, you can be sure the truth will come out one day. For 1 Corinthians 4 even says, not only will the acts be judged, but the motivations behind the acts will be judged. Every act and every motivation in a believer's life will be judged. Why must we appear? Why can it not be an option? Why can't I say, Lord, I'm not interested in being there? Those who think they've really got an award coming can go. Why will that not be allowed? Because God is going to see to it that every member of the body of Christ is a visual witness to the truth. And right will be made known at that particular time. My, uh, my last son is getting ready for the last three weeks of high school. We've put 12 years into Clackamas High School and four kids. And uh, he thinks he's got a chance for the Fine Arts Award at his high school. And believe me, he's not treating that award night lightly. He plans to be there. But the majority of the school won't be there. They could care less about that night. But the people who are really excited are the ones that think they've got a chance at one of the awards. Some will be there, some won't be there. But that won't be true at the judgment seat of Christ. Not some will be there and some won't be there. All, all will be there before the righteous judge. The necessity of the believer's judgment because of the righteousness of God, because of the requirements of conscience and of our own experience. Vindication. But it will not only be vindication, it will be reward. In other words, it will not only look backward, it will look forward. It'll, it'll straighten out the record of the past, but it will also determine the practice of the future. I've said this statement a number of times. I hope it remains in your mind. We are becoming today by what we do with what we have what we will be in the life to come. We are becoming today by what we do with what we have, what we will be in the life to come. And therefore, everything I do takes on significance.
because it's either a gain or a loss at the judgment seat of Christ. 2 Corinthians 5.10 doesn't talk about good, neutral, or bad. It talks about good or bad. And there's no way I can put everything in my life on the side of good or bad. I don't have the wisdom to do that. And I certainly can't do it in your life. But God can. The righteous evaluator will be able to trace every motivation that I have back to heaven or hell. Every thought I have, every act I perform, ultimately has its energy source in the kingdom of light or the kingdom of darkness. And it's good for me to think that clearly, if I can today. There will be reward. So it not only provides a standard for discipline in this life, but it provides a basis for determining position of service in the life to come. That leads you to number three. It prov provides rewards for service. A uh, couple of hours ago, I uh, brought before you a contemporary problem that we face a discussion that goes back and forth on the matter of lordship evangelism, which in my mind tends to compromise the gospel of grace. And I would agree wholeheartedly with Zane Hodges' book, The Gospel Under Siege, that there are those today who are trying to shape up believers' lives by adding to the requirements of salvation, namely faith alone. And so we want to add something else in to kind of make them make sure. Thus, the evidence of their regeneration becomes not the specific promise of the Word of God, but the works of their life. And I don't find that to be true. I find in the Scripture that as many as receive Him, to them gives He the authority to become the children of God. But some people, because they feel that such a cheap grace, and they refer to it that way, and I resent that, because there is no cheap grace. Uh, grace costs God Almighty the life of His only Son, Jesus Christ. There's no cheap grace. But don't try to add to His grace by putting your paltry works to it. If Jesus didn't do enough, your works aren't going to do much good. And if he did enough, that's enough. <coughs> but you say, how do I keep from trifling with such a marvelous grace? When I read, you are redeemed not with, sil not with silver and gold, but with the precious blood of Jesus Christ. How do I keep from trampling that? God gives me another motivation. And it's not lordship evangelism. It's Bema reward. God is going to righteously reward what I have done with what he gave me. And if I do nothing with it, that will be the picture. Saved, so as by fire. Stripped, but saved. Why? Because of God's grace, 
I go there because of who I know, not because of what I did. There is a time when it pays to know the right people. I go there clothed in the garment of his righteousness. When I get there, I will be rewarded for my righteousnesses. Revelation 19. So I am today sewing the wardrobe, so to speak, that I'll wear in the life to come. If you want to join a nudist colony, have at it. Do nothing. Pictorially. Eternally. Stripped. Or, if you want a wardrobe of a king, you've got your choice. Jesus made that so clear in the parable in Luke 19, where he gave the pound to each of the three. One went out and made ten. Another went out and made five. Another hid it because this is a fearsome and awesome Lord. And he hid his talent. To the one who made ten, he says, you will rule over ten cities. To the one who made five, you will rule over five cities. To the one who did nothing to double it, I'll take it from you and give it to this one. You didn't have enough sense to even use what I gave you with good stewardship. But that doesn't change where he'll be. He'll be with Jesus Christ. He'll be in heaven eternally. Why? By God's grace, not by man's works. But what he will be there is entirely dependent on his works, which he was able to do by God's grace. The Bible is so desirous of communicating that that God puts it across to us in various kinds of pictures. I just referred to one of them in Revelation 19 as a a garment factory, a, a wardrobe. I'm sewing my wardrobe that I'll wear. Another place that puts it across as a, uh, a race for which I receive reward, which is a position of service. It looks at it as crowns. And you have some of those stated on page 296 and 297. The crown of exaltation, that great sense of joy which will be experienced by the servant of God from the knowledge that because of his ministry, others will be with Christ when he comes. There will be a quality of joy that will be able to be experienced by the person who has been faithful in winning others to, be, to Jesus Christ that will not otherwise be experienced. These are, these are not flip words. A crown of joy. I like what, uh, what Holcomb says in that little handout I gave you from uh, his book, where he says, The relation between our works and our future reward ought, however, to be understand, understood not in a mechanical, but rather in an organic way. When one has studied music and has attained some proficiency in playing a musical instrument, his capacity for enjoying music has been greatly increased. And I said to somebody after the class last hour that uh, when I went off to college, I had had no background 
in, in classical music at all. And in the college I went to, they made you go to operas. They, they made you go to uh, Shakespearean plays. And, and uh, you, you learned to enjoy it whether you liked it or not. And, uh, and that was the only way you could have a date, by the way. So you took your date to that. And, and I learned to enjoy, to some measure, Bach. My wife was a Bach major. And uh, so, uh, my girlfriend at that time. And so I had to learn to enjoy Bach a little bit. And I can, to a day, to today, appreciate classical music more than I did then. But in no way can I appreciate it like Ron Allen does. I mean, he can listen to a classical piece and go into ecstasy. He'll start shouting and have an experience, you know, as he's uh, listening to this classical piece drone on. Uh, now, there is a... There is a developed ability to enjoy that. And some of us are real clods at that. And some are really professionals at that. It is not a mechanical thing. It is an organic thing. Now, God says, those who have really become involved in seeing people come to Jesus Christ are going to be given a crown of joy for the life to come. They are going to be able to have a quality of joy that will be far superior to other people in heaven. See, it is not a matter of indifference to God whether I care or not about the lost. I can sit back on my tokus and do nothing about it and be in heaven. Or I can get under the burden of it and have a crown of joy when I get there. Or a pastor, an elder, who is faithful to the flock, why should an elder bother to take upon himself the heavy responsibility of trying to shepherd these sheep if indeed there will be no difference at the judgment seat of Christ? Ah, don't mistake it. There will be a difference. And he says, for that one who serves well that way, there will be what? A crown of glory, 1 Peter 5. For those who serve as elders in an appropriately pastoral way, properly relating to the flock of God, a, smash, a special measure of glory is in store. It's not a matter of indifference that a pastor is a faithful pastor. Hebrews 13, 17, Obey those that have the rule over you and watch, and have the watch for your... Fo oh, I'm not quoting that right. Obey those that have the rule over you and submit yourselves, for they have the watch for your souls, as they that must give account. And if they can give a good account of their watch over the souls of that portion of the flock allotted to them, they shall receive a crown of glory. What is glory? When we say that Jesus Christ is the glory of the Father, what is glory? Glory is manifestation. And the pastor called to that high calling who serves well in this life, in that vocation, shall in the life to come have an unusual measure of glory as he reigns with Jesus Christ. You see, I am called not only 
to believe on Christ, but to live for Christ. If I believe, if I so much as believe in Christ, I shall spend eternity with him. If I suffer for him, I shall also rule with him. Those are two quite different things. To live with him, to rule with him. That's where the judgment seat of Christ comes in. And uh, I pray God that that which has been a serious neglect in evangelical teaching and writing at this point shall not be a neglect in your life, because if it is, it'll be your neglect for eternity. What a thing. What a motivation. God not only by grace brings me into his family, but then by grace he allows me to do mighty works for him, and then he rewards me for what I do by his grace. That's what Paul meant when he said, that's grace upon grace upon grace. Hate to stop there, but I've got to. Thank you.